I don't, I don't think one cycling or professional sport is 100% clean. You're always going to have individuals who are going to take risks, uh, but you know, the risks now, uh, you might not get caught now, but you know, with the biological passport, with the way that teams approach things, with the team doc, way team doctors approach things, and, and you, you'll eventually get caught. It might, you might not get caught this week or ne- next month, but you can get caught down the track, and I think that's a big deterrent. The big question is this. How do we use cycling as a tool to improve our health, our happiness, and our longevity? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Anthony Walsh, and welcome to the Roadman Podcast. Hello, Roadman. Welcome back to another Roadman Podcast. I love my little intimate chat with you guys once a week. Got a super special show. Getting a little bit cliche at this stage that I keep saying that, but I really do feel humbled every week to talk to these guests. Today's guest is Matt White. Matt White may be a name that you're familiar with from cycling uh, back in the day, the Lance Armstrong era. Matt White was a writer at US Postal, but he really sprung to my attention as probably the most notable and famed director sportif. The guys who pull the strings behind the scenes in a pro cycling team. Matt is director sportif for Mitchelton Scott and he's heralded and steered the ship towards some of the biggest wins in cycling. I love Matt because he wears his heart on his sleeve, he's opinionated, he's brash at times but he's always honest and entertaining. Matt recently has sprung into our consciousness with the massive success that has been Backstage Pass. It's a little intimate look behind the scenes at the workings of a Pro Tour cycling team. So on the Backstage Pass team, I'm bringing you behind the scenes again for this little intimate fireside chat with Matt. Before I jump into this, I want to just thank you for your support to date on our Patreon account. Our Patreon account is the lifeblood of this podcast. If you're listening to the podcast right now, it's cause of the generosity of your peers on Patreon. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash Anthony underscore Walsh. Patreon is my little tip jar. It's a way for you to buy me a coffee and say thank you very much for facilitating this podcast that I'm listening to every week. For you, it might seem like a small little gesture, but for me and for this podcast, it's the lifeblood that keeps us going forward, that keeps building, that keeps compounding, the positive momentum from positive momentum. So I really, really do appreciate your support over there on Patreon. So I'm going to leave the link to that Patreon in the description down below. And if you get a chance, please tip on over and buy me a coffee. And you know what? It's a tough time during COVID. And if you can't afford to buy me a coffee, that's all right as well. Keep listening. Absolutely no strings attached. Free of charge. The second way, if you're so minded, you can support this podcast is buying some of our exclusive Roadman merch. The Roadman merch, we launched it last week and it's been a massive success so far. So I thank you very much for the support on that. I'm going to leave the link in the description for the Roadman merch store down below as well. We've everything from jerseys, shorts, gilets, jackets to t-shirts, hoodies and caps. Pretty cool pink and navy design on most of the kit and I'll I'll tell you a short story about where the the design came from I was 2013 I was riding for my trade team at the time Estellas Oncology and I was in Toronto and I was in a coffee shop 
and I was like a walking billboard with sponsors all over me from a pharmaceutical company and you know I felt a little bit self-conscious and I was kind of trying to hide it and I was meeting a buddy and he was a retired world tour rider and he rocked in and he was wearing real simple real clean no branded stuff he was wearing a pair of navy shorts and a pink jersey and at that moment I just thought I'm not sure if it was the juxtaposition of his tanned tanned legs and arms against the pink or what it was but at that moment I was just like that's the color scheme I want when I finally get my own jerseys that's the color scheme I want and Roadman is the realization of that dream so guys thank you for listening to my ramblings here and without pushing this off any further I'm going to jump on in to this intimate conversation with one of the funny guys in the peloton Matt White Matt White, welcome to the Roadman Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, I think. Good, good. Nice, nice to chat. Uh, I know I've had a couple of your, I don't, know, I don't know if they're friends or colleagues or if you draw a distinction at your team, had a couple of your friends on the podcast recently. I had Chris Yule Jensen and yeah, yeah. I had uh, Scott Murphy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, friends and colleagues of both of them, actually, uh, in very different ways, but uh, yeah, good, uh, good mates both. You know, I messaged both the lads last night and uh, Scott uh, was one who hooked up this and uh, I messaged you with him last night and I was messaging Yule and I was like, right, I have Matt White on the podcast tomorrow. Give me a bit of dirt on him. He's like, I'm not saying a fucking thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I sent Scott the same message and he's like, I'm not saying a word. So... <laughs> Either you're the cleanest man in sport and there's no dirt on you, or you just wield this axe of terror over the last. <laughs> well, the dirt has already been dished a while ago, but uh, no, Murph, Murph knows me well. He knows uh, some of the shenanigans I've got up to over the over the years. And uh, Chris, not so much, but uh, yeah, as obviously we've got a different relationship, but uh, uh, they're, they're good lads, both of them. I, have to, I had Morpheus on the podcast a few months ago, but I only had Chris on a couple of days ago. And uh, he, he's some crack like, because, you know, Chris left Ireland before I started racing. And so I heard the stories that, like, you know, he's basically an Irish lad, but he is just an Irish lad. Yeah, it, it's an interesting story with Chris. Uh, growing up, he, both his parents working in Ireland, and I think he was there till about 12 or 13 years of age. And uh, and then he moved back to Denmark. His both parents are Danish, and uh, he's has lived in Denmark ever since, but he uh, certainly hasn't lost his accent, that's for sure. He must be good fun around the team. He is, he is. He's one of those guys uh, that I, I love having, having him with me wherever, wherever race we are. He's such, a, such an all-rounder, and I really know what I can get out of him, and he's one of those guys... Look, I, I see a lot of uh, him, him in myself as a rider as well. It's, you know, no matter how bad things get, no matter how good things get, he's the same guy, and, uh, and that's a great attitude, and it's a great... It's a great energy to have around a team because, you know, shit goes wrong in races. Shit doesn't go always as you'd like it to. And uh, more people like that around, the, the better it is and the more enjoyable the, the environment is. He seems to be settling into that role as a domestic and finding himself. Like, he was even talking to me about how he said in the Tour de France, you just got to draw a line and you can't have the same crack. That It just wastes energy. Yeah, I think Chris learned that the hard way. Uh, the, f- <laughs> the first... The first Tour de France, he came on with us. You know, we had uh, we had Dan Jones making these backstage passes every day, and you know, Chris. You know, basically, Dan saw Chris as walking content, and you know, <laughs> he, he, he wouldn't have to tweak too much. And you know, Chris was Chris was so up and about. It was his first Tour de France, and he knew he'd be on the videos every day. And so, 
Yeah, I could see I could see the novelty was going to wear off this pretty thin with uh, some of the guys, especially in the second half of the tour. Because there's, there's, you know, everyone handles pressure differently. And there's some pretty intense guys uh, in the team. And uh, it, 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 came to, it came to blows. Not blows, but it came to a head in the back end of the tour. And uh, we sat down with Chris and, and, and spoke to him about it and said, look, you know, we, we love the energy and love everything. But under, in certain environments, you've really got to you know, think more of others than yourself. And hats off to Chris. He took that advice away and came back a different guy the next year and... Uh, like I said, he's uh, one of the most reliable guys in my team and I love working with him uh, no matter what, where it is in any calendar in any race. Was it pissing riders off in the back half of the race? Uh, yes, yes, uh, especially uh, Mr. Matthew Heyman. Uh, it was his, I, think Matt, it was, I think it was Matt's first Tour de France at the ripe old age of about 36, 37. And Matt's a pretty intense guy and uh, he was our road captain at the time and uh, yeah, they, they, they butted heads and because uh, Chris, Chris was so up and about, Matt's so serious. And the two in the third week of the tour just didn't mesh so well. Uh, they worked it out, and uh, I said Chris took that advice away and came back, and uh, has been has always has been always been a pleasure to work with. But he's he's learnt from uh, learnt from his mistakes. Chris didn't want to burn you with any stories. Do you feel like boring Chris with any stories? No, there's nothing to burn, that's for sure. He, he, I said he's he's a bundle of energy. He's a bundle of humour. Uh, he does a great impersonation, and uh, he's he's a guy. That I said. He's a guy I love working with, and uh, no, he's uh, he's really grown and matured on this team. And uh, look, fingers crossed, we can get back to racing in August. And uh, and yeah, uh, and look, Chris is scheduled to ride the Tour de France, no matter wherever that may fall. And uh, looking forward to uh, hitting the road with him again soon. Could be like a four-day Tour de France just around Girona or something. Well, who knows? Who knows, man? I, I still got, I still can't get my head around how they're going to get bike racing up and away safely uh, in this environment. But look, time we have, but uh, time will tell. Uh, let's talk about backstage pass a little bit because at the moment you're just not flavour of the month here in my house because my girlfriend had to watch backstage pass during breakfast this morning in preparation for this interview. So, <laughs> <laughs> but afterwards, she was just going out the door and she was saying to me like. She loves backstage pass. She's a cycling fan, but not a hardcore cycling fan. You know, she'll watch it in the background because I'm watching it. But it's amazing how accessible backstage pass made cycling to the non-hardcore fans. Yeah, definitely. And, and the, the key there is uh, is the, having the right guy behind the camera. Now, it started off with Dan Jones for the first five or six years, and he was the quintessential bachelor. So he was a guy in his late 20s uh he at the first year he came overseas he actually didn't have a residence he was going from race to race he was a hobo he was a cycling hobo he was going from <laughs> from race to race to in in between races he'd bop at a rider's house for a week he'd go back to the service course do his washing five days he'd, he'd bum around there then go to another race and he did that for like nine months the first year the second year i think he got an apartment eventually didn't spend too much time in it but uh, he, yeah, he, he was one of the boys because he, at that age as well, he was that sort of in the median sort of age of the riders and larrikin of a guy. And what it did is it basically it desensitised a lot of our guys to the media. And uh, having a funny guy who was one of the boys with a camera in your face, you know, after a while, it really did desensitise them. And so when they got off the bus and were talking to other media, they actually had relaxed a lot and it was basically free media training for us. And what it did is because... Because everyone trusted Dan, you know, people do say and do some pretty stupid things during a, during a normal day. And uh, Dan had caught a lot of that on video, but everyone knew that Dan was never going to burn you. There was a fine line between burning and, and comedy, 
But Dan, Dan had the trust in the boys and myself as well. So when you've got someone behind the camera who you let, he had access to everywhere, you know, every meeting, every debrief, everywhere he could go, wherever he wanted. And when people are relaxed, that's who they are. And uh, look, I think the concept wouldn't work on the vast majority of teams. And by the time, by the time uh, our new guy got here, uh, it, it was it was pretty seamless. It was it was pretty seamless. And uh, and Flange, he is uh, the new guy from from Northern England. He he's he's a very similar personality to Jonesy, and he's just carried on with some great work as well. Me and Chris were talking about this the other day, and I kind of got into this the art of storytelling and trying to study it a bit as a new year resolution this year. But one of the things in storytelling is we need to care about the hero in our story, whatever movie it is in Hollywood, they call it a save the cat scene where they set up the hero at the start and he does something like, you know, save a cat out of a tree. So now we care about his journey. We care about if he gets killed at the end of the movie. Like, did you ever watch a movie and the hero goes through and gets killed at the end and you're like, I don't give a fuck that he got killed. What backstage pass done was it gave us that connection with you lads. Like the yeah. example I gave Chris was uh, like obviously I'm an Irishman, a proud Irishman. Nicholas Roach is in the break on Bastille Day with Daryl Impey, and I've watched so much backstage pass. I'm cheering for Daryl Impey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, what a connection! How like there's no other team that's built this connection. And so I see broad world tour cycle on one end of the spectrum. It's you lads who've built this crazy connection with the fans, with the audience, with ultimately your punters who are going to be going out and buying Scott bikes and things like that. And then Ineos on the other end who are like fucking robots who, you know, you couldn't care if they live or die. There's, they're like, they're like Robocop on a bike. There's no connection at all there. Yeah, look, it's, it, it was, it, this, the whole concept was really encouraged by our owner, Jerry Ryan. And, and basically at the end of the day, he, he, he's been involved in entertainment uh, and made a lot of money through entertainment uh, over the years. And you know, basically cycling was a part of the entertainment business and cycling was a genre. And he really encouraged that. And, yeah, when you when your boss is encouraging it, and when I I feel comfortable doing it as well, then and the riders feel comfortable. Yeah, we uh, it it really did blossom into something pretty special. But and I think people anyone can watch a bike race. Uh, but what people really liked is to see the behind the scenes and who we were. And, and we, we there was nothing put on for the cameras. And yeah, the stuff saw, in the car is brilliant. Like you know, you, yeah. you celebrating when girls winning uh, Liège and San Remo and stuff like brilliant. Yeah, and, and, and there's a lot of stuff that, you, uh, that they couldn't show. There's, look, there's, there's enough footage to make a, a mini-series, put it that way. Like, <laughs> the amount of hours that Dan, John, Dan Jones shot in that first six years is incredible. So, and it shows the highs, the lows, the ups, the downs, everything. And I think people, people like that. People really, they miss having a real connection with their, with their sporting idols. Is there any standout moments in terms of comedy and the, the, the bus getting stuck in the stage finish is pretty funny? It look, it look, it's funny looking back on it. It certainly wasn't funny at the time. Um, <laughs> Talk us through that because some people might not even know what we're talking about. Yeah, so it was our second Tour de France. We're in Corsica, stage one, one or two of the Tour de France. I think it was stage, stage two. Stage two of the Tour de France. And uh, so what happens is uh, the buses go from the start to the finish. Uh, this day, we had our hotel 400 metres from the finish line. So we, instead of moving the bus to the finish line, what we wanted to do is to get the guys out of there straight away, we said, we won't, we'll put the bus at the hotel. So as soon as they cross the finish line, one of the massage service would direct them, there you go, boys, up the hill on the right-hand side, that's our hotel, straight up there. They can start their recovery process, you know, cold showers, massage, you name it, straight away. Instead of, you know, if they go to the bus, they get on the bus, they have a shower, 
They talk to the media, blah, 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 and you've wasted an hour before you know it. Anyway, the race is, the race is away. And so all, all the buses are uh, going convoy, and uh, our bus went in the convoy, went up to the hotel, and then our owner was at the finish. And our owner, you know, very proud of the, the bus there. It's the second, our second uh, Tour de France. And the, our owner said to our general manager, where's, uh, where's the bus, by the way? And uh, he didn't, uh, didn't realise where, where it was. And so he got a phone call to our second director, who was not in the car with me, Neil Stevens. I said, where's, uh, Neil, where's the bus? And he said, oh, look, the plan was uh, to send it to the hotel today. And Rady Ra. He said, and uh, Shane, our general manager, said, look, uh, Jerry, the owner, would really like the bus at the finish. So I'm totally unaware of this. I'm in car one, calling the shots for the race there. And uh, so Neil got on the phone. Picked up the phone to the bus driver and said, uh, Gary, where, where are you? And he said, I'm at, the, I'm at the hotel, mate, just like you asked. He said, look, Jerry really wants the bus at the finish line. Come, try your hardest to get down to the finish. And uh, if you can, it'd be really appreciated. So anyway, anyone who's been to the Tour de France knows that you can't move at the Tour de France unless you have the proper accreditation. And you know, the amount of police and security and people from the race stopping and letting people go and controlling the traffic movement is incredible. So Gary had to do about three kilometres to go, 400 metres to go, because you've got to enter all these, all these ed- entries and, and exits in a certain way. It's called the PPO. And so Gary's found his way into the PPO, and all the other teams had already been in 15 minutes at that time. So un- unaware to him or the person who led him into that final entry that they, there's a gantry on the finish line. Now, once the, the gantry is raised to let the 25 buses in, but once all the buses are in, they lower the gantry for the finish. Oh, fuck. And uh, fuck. so th- there was no communication between the, the people at the gantry and the people on the last uh, security check. So Gary, our bus driver's uh, been waved through to the finish. So he's got one kilometre to go down the, the last kilometre of the race and he gets to the finish line. He wasn't going super fast, but, you know, it, Gary was unaware there was any, any leverage with the gantry either. Rolls across the finish line, crunch. You know, he, he, he wedges the bus into the gantry. Anyway, all hell breaks loose. The bus is wedged there. They can't get the bus out. There's only about 25 kilometres to go from the race. Anyway, about five minutes later, we hear on the radio, because unaware to us, they, they couldn't move this. They couldn't move this bus. Anyway, on the radio, my, my, French, is, my French is average, to say the least. It's okay in, when you talk about cycling. Uh, and that's, I certainly don't speak French. I'm on the race radio, first came along, listen, uh, so we have a race radio in a car, official race radio, and then we have another one where we talk to the riders. Does the communique come across in French? Pardon? Does the communique come across in French on the race radio? It does come across, it does come across in French, and then sometimes they, they repeat it in other languages, depending on uh, how interested the guy is to, to speak other languages. Um, so it come across in French, you know, due to uh, one of the team buses being stuck at the finish line, we are now moving the finish line to three kilometres to go. And, and I looked at the guy who's next to me, and uh, Lorenzo, he's a Belgian who speaks perfect French, and I said, did, did I hear correctly? And he <laughs> said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, then I got a phone call uh, from Neil, and it was like, yeah, that's our bus. And I just remember going, oh, what the hell? What has happened here? And anyway, this is like 20K to go, so 20 minutes to go. And they've moved the finish line. I looked in the book. Three kilometres to go or 2.5 kilometres to go, it was a roundabout. Uh, so, but why they, why they chose three kilometres to go is there's a timing device at three kilometres. And so there's nothing else in between 3K and 1K to go that they could have got accurate timing. 
But oh, it, was, it, was a, it, was, it was a slight corner onto a roundabout, and they were going to call that the finish line. Anyway, so I, I got on the radio, told the guys, and then I've got a couple of guys that like, sort of questioned. I said, yep, guys, I didn't get, get going into the details. I said, there's been a problem at the finish line. The finish line is now 3K to go. Let's focus on that. We had a sprinter, Matt Goss. This is everything. Reset our markers, and the 3K to go is the finish line. Meanwhile, they worked out, they let the bus, that aired the tyres out of the bus, uh, so the air out of the tyres of the bus, they moved the, t- uh, the bus back, parked it 150 metres off the road, then came on the radio and said, we have cleared the bus, and this was like 10 minutes to go before we got there. We are ne- the, the finish goes back to the original finish line. Anyway, so I repeated that on the radio to the guys, the guys copied, and off we went. Anyway, we got to the finish, and yeah, the... the, the <laughs> Yeah, it was the biggest story of the Tour de France for a long time, and there was there was you know there was media outlets uh, who were showing uh, media outlets who don't usually talk about cycling had pictures of our bus, like the Washington Post had <laughs> a picture of our bus wedged under the finish line. You know, I think it was the front page of the paper over here. Oh, and we, we got we got because Vitel, uh, the the water sponsor, and their 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 advertising is on the the banner. And we got emails like that night from Vitel thanking us. Oh, my, did you get fined for it? We did. We got fined. It was a token fine because at the end of the day, the, the organizer didn't want to lose face because they, at the end of the day, it was their problem because they, they sh- if they let our bus driver go on there. Hard on the so bus driver it was, as well. It was. It was one of those slap on the wrist fines. It was $1,000 or something like that. But uh, they came and apologized to us the next day. And uh, look, at the end of the day, our bus driver was incredible. Uh, cool as a cucumber. And uh, got the bus off the, reversed the bus 200 metres against uh, and parked it off the side of the road and, uh, and, and carried on. Could have been worse. We had uh, the Irish team, Aqua Blue, which tried to slip up to Pro there for a while. And uh, over in the Vuelta Espana, they got their bus burnt out. Do you remember that? I do. Someone put a flaming mattress underneath it. Yeah, the story goes now, I'm not sure how true it was, that some dude, a local mafia dude, came around looking for protection money or something the night before, and they refused to pay it, and fucking next next morning they wake up to a smoldering bus. Not sure the yeah, truth in that rumor. Look, that's, that's probably a pretty credible story, because I've been in that same situation in the south of Italy, where uh, you know local gangsters or mafia, whatever you want to call them, have, have, have offered us the same, and I've paid them. Um, I, I didn't get a receipt, but I, I paid them uh, because yeah, in, 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 you don't want to mess with people like that in the south of Italy and Sicily and Reggio Calabria and those sort of places where people will come and say, "Listen, I can look after your bus for fifty, and it, look, it's worth the money." So look, that's that's a pretty credible story. Yeah, what was Aqua Blue? How were they received in the bunch when they did try and come in? Yeah, look, it's another continental team that were trying to do their best to uh, to to move up in in the rankings and. Uh, well, they, they had some great results over that, I think it was, what, two-year period? Well, they had Denefel who won the Vuelta stage, but subsequently got taken off from now for the, the open stuff. But, yeah, I think... Larry Warbass won the American Championships and also yeah. uh, stage in Tour of Switzerland would be their biggest win, which is a pretty, pretty handy win. Yeah, no, it was, as an Irish fan of cycling, it was shit to see them falling apart in such dramatic uh, style. Yeah, look, it's a shame. Look, it, it's... Professional cycling is not a it, look. It's not a cheap uh, sport to get into. Con, pro Conti teams is obviously a lot less budget than, than ours. But at the end of the day, the the business model in cycling is one where you are totally reliant on sponsorship, and uh, yeah, it's hard to reinvent the wheel. 
what do you think about the business model in cycling at the moment? Is it a sustainable business model or is it you looking for, you know, almost philanthropy or charity from the sponsors? Yeah, it is, it's not a good business model. It, you know, we're getting, especially from the biggest races of the year, we're getting absolutely no television revenue. So sponsor walks, you can't replace them, the team ends. So it, I, look, I'd hate to say, I hate to say it, but I think we're going to struggle to get all 18 World Tour teams through this crisis we're experiencing at the moment. And uh, that'll be a real shame just because there's teams always on the edge. Uh, but I think uh, the coronavirus, it's touching everyone around the world in, in different ways in business. And uh, yeah, I hope, I hope I'm proved wrong, but uh, I think we'll be lucky to have all 18 teams around in 2021. You know, mine's a, a small coaching business, but we're big on digital advertising. But for me, I'll track through every euro. So if I spend a thousand euro on Facebook advertising, I want to know on the back end that that thousand euro expenditure is making me more than a thousand euro. It yeah. just, it, it seems like the model doesn't do that well enough. You're just not enough ROI. Like, that's why I love Backstage Pass, for its entertainment, yeah, but also for its attempt to change this model and give a little bit extra value to the sponsors. Yeah, look, the weird thing is, is what you've, you've got sponsors that, that are coming into our sport and they're, they're loving it. You know, you've got teams like Sunweb and those guys, they've signed an indefinite contract. The, the teams are getting their money's worth back, but the thing is, that's all, it's all temporary. You know, most sponsorships aren't going to last more than six or seven years. They've got their, they come in, they advertise, they get out. Whereas, you know, if we, if we had a percentage of our revenue was, was from television, if you have a, a lean year or a year where you can't attract a sponsor to the same sort of money, you've got, you've got something to fall back on. There's, there's, no, there's nothing to fall back on in World Tour Cycling. And what's going on with television revenue? Is there a dialogue open around getting a share of that television revenue? Not really. Uh, ASO, the people who run the biggest races of the year, and uh, they're happy. Uh, they're happy making that money. I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. Uh, tell us this: the in backstage pass. Anytime I've been in the team car, even going back for bottles in races and stuff, the car looks like it's great crack. But what's the what's the banter like between the? Directors, is there a rivalry? Do you have you know certain people you trust within that? Yeah, I'll tell you one thing. It's changed a hell of a lot since I since I, I, I changed from a writer to a director. So this is my twelfth year as a sports director. So when I when I uh, started, I was 33, 34 back in two thousand and eight, and I was the youngest sports director by at least ten years. So, and the reason I retired and because it was a great opportunity for me is you know back then. Europe, cycling was still very, very Western European and, and French employed French, Italians employed Italian, Belgium employed Belgians. And I didn't really see an opportunity, didn't even think of a career as a sports director because it just wasn't, there was no chances, you know, back in the early 2000s. And when, so when I got this opportunity, I jumped at it. And I think a lot of the sports directors, and there's a few still around, saw me as this young Aussie kid, you know, just, just left, the, left the pro ranks. And, and didn't really cut me too much respect there the first year or two. Uh, some of them were pretty stuck up. Uh, and I remember who they are now because some of them are still around. And, and yeah, it, was, it, took, it took a little bit of time to break down those barriers. But and what's that lack of respect look like? Is that like aggression in the cavalcade or is it just generally being a dick in the car park? Yeah, just, just oh, they thought their shit didn't stink. And, and you know, I'd, I'd make an effort to say hello and... And yeah, it was sort of like, oh yeah, who are you, sort of thing, and uh, and sort of things have changed now. But at that time, at that time, uh, that, that 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 older generation, you know, ten to fifteen years older than me, 
those guys all raced against each other and they, they carried grudges and they carried grudges into the racing still. So that, that one team would try to stiff another team because that director didn't like that director and, oh, it was terrible. And, and the, one, the one positive today, I had nothing to do with that. You know, I, was, I never raced those guys. They're too old. I didn't have that same – I didn't have any enemies when I came in. I didn't have too many friends, but I didn't have too many any enemies either. <laughs> and what's changed is that is there's a lot, there's a lot, there's a new generation of sports directors in there now. And I think the respect that we have for each other, there's a lot more banter. There's a lot more. We all respect each other. We're competing against each other. But before, back in the day, you know, there was there was you know teams would do deals with each other. You know, there be you know because then there was six Italian teams, there was six or seven French teams, and there'd be teams that were well 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 clicked, and other teams that hated each other. And, that doesn't exist anymore. That really doesn't exist, and it's great. But uh, the environment now, it's a lot more enjoyable to work in, and obviously now, being in the game 12 years, you know, a lot of those older guys who I'd started with, they're either moved on to managers or they're, they're, uh, they're, they're out of the sport now anyway. But do you start seeing that validation or respect from those lads when you go with Gero and you win a San Remo or you win a Liege? Yeah, well, my first three years was with, uh, was with Garmin. So, yeah, whatever. My, my first Tour de France were fourth with Christian Vanderbilt. The second year were fourth again with, with uh, Brad Wiggins. So, well, we won stages in the Giro. The first Giro I ever went to with Garmin, we won the team's time trial day one. So I think respect comes with, with sustainability. And I, I think from the outside, if people see a team that's successful throughout the year and they're doing things right, they're doing things with this in a certain way and the way that people race, I think that's, where, that's what respect is. So... Obviously, then when I moved on to, to this team, uh, yeah, we've had a lot of success straight away as well. We are winning my San Remo and some big classics and, and, and monuments along the way. Uh, I'd already sort of been established for four years by the time I got to, uh, to Greenwich. We interrupt the schedule broadcast to bring you this brief public service announcement. Yes, if you're a regular listener, you know what this is. This is the time in the show where we take our little collective exhalation or if you're Irish, you go and stick the kettle on and you make your 11th cup of tea today. And we just take that brief little pause, brief little interlude. And it's my opportunity to remind you to head on over to patreon.com forward slash Anthony underscore Walsh. That is the tip jar for this podcast. That is where you can buy me a coffee, buy me a beer and say, you know what, Skin, you're a good lad. I'm enjoying listening to Matt White and his crazy ramblings. I'd be willing to buy you a coffee for facilitating this. That's your place you can do it. Might seem trivial to you, but for me, for this podcast, it keeps us rolling. It keeps the show on the road week after week. With every donation, we're getting that little bit closer to break even on the podcast and being able to keep this a sustainable model where I can keep bringing you these podcasts, where I can keep facilitating these little... What I like to think are very unique chats because I don't know anyone else doing this sort of stuff at the moment. So it's much appreciated. It's Anthony, sorry, it's Patreon, confuse myself. It's patreon.com forward slash Anthony underscore Walsh. Save the confusion. The link is in the description down below. Now, let's get back to Matt. You touched on uh, team time trial with Garmin, and is that something you're carrying? Does that focus on team time trial? Does that come from you? Because obviously, I'm sitting here at the moment in lockdown mode in Dublin. 
you guys in 2014 team time trial in Belfast Sven Tuft takes the jersey but you went into that race as favourites if I remember or if not favourites up there with quick step for it yep yeah yeah no it's it's definitely the way I like to uh, to build a team is I uh, the team's time trial type rider they're, they're pretty valuable and we, we had our winners and uh, I, I used to love the team's time trials when I was an athlete and we, we were lucky that a lot of the Australians um, who we picked up early in, you know, in, the, in the creation of this team could do a team's time trial. So, yeah, that was uh, – we already had a, a bunch of great team's time trials. And at the end of the day, what makes a great team's time trial is most of those guys, especially the Australians, they all rode at a national level, world level uh, on the track. So most of the uh, – you know, Brett Lancaster, Stuart O'Grady, Cameron Meyer, those guys were all Olympic – medalists or world champions in the team's pursuit. If you can ride a team's pursuit at, at that level, you're certainly going to ride a good team's time trial. So we had a ready-built team. And you know, so we, we went after you know, winning the 2013 Tour de France team's time trial, 14-15 Giro team's time trial. We've had some great wins and it sort of certainly has set us up well. How do you decide coming in the road that Sven is first man across the line in 2014 to take the jersey? Yeah, so with him, I didn't realise at the time, but it actually was his birthday. But I... Uh, <laughs> he, had been part, he had been an integral part of, um, of the wins we'd had. We'd already had about five Team Time Trial wins in that year and a half of the team already, and we'd, I think we'd won nearly every Team Time Trial we started. And it's one of those things where I just... You know, Spain epitomises what we, the, the ethos of this team, and I didn't know it was his birthday. And so we'd done all the recon. We'd gone through all the phases of how we are going to pick apart this Team Time Trial. And the last meeting we had... I just said at the end, and once we get to the line, I want Spain to cross the finish line first. No one said anything, boom, away we went. So basically, it's then Spain's responsibility to get his, his ass across the finish line first. Uh, it, it, what it did, it, it upset, it upset uh, even Santa Marita. So he was, and he didn't say anything at the time, uh, spineless Italian that he is, he, uh, <laughs> he was Italian national champion at the time, and he, he expected us to let him Cross the finish line first because he's Italian, and uh, and so that would be great for him to take the Mayu Rosa. And I was like, well, he didn't say anything to me at the time, but he complained about it to the media, and uh, it didn't go down well. I tell you that. And uh, he's a guy who I had, we had him sitting on in that team's time trial all the way up past the castle and around. He did two turns. And, <laughs> and he got he two, did two turns. He did one turn. Uh, on the way back in up this little climb, I remember, and we had to call him in because he nearly got tailed off. So uh, all the boys were really happy to uh, to see Spain in the jersey, and obviously it was an added bonus that it was his birthday. But I remember doing team time trials. I was riding for a French amateur team, a division national team, and they just couldn't get the concept of team time trials even. It's something that's, I think, foreign to the Italians and the French. Like, you'd be riding along steady, and then it comes to a drag, and they hit it at, like, 750 watts, and then they're freewheeling on the downhill and freewheeling back on the straight, and then they're whacking it again on the drag. You always yeah, just seem so well drilled. Yeah, it is. And the bonus there is a lot of the guys did live in Drona, so we could have sort of unannounced, you know, planned team time trial training. This is part of their, of their weekly routine. So our guys did prep a lot, spend a lot of time together and have that, having a core group of guys riding a lot of team time trials and you know, it comes back to that team pursuit experience. They know how to ride a wheel. They know it's all, you know, the, the secret of team time trials is just that, that constant speed and no surges. And so we're, we're a pretty, pretty confident unit going into any team time trial that we, that we raced. You hit the ground running that year because didn't Bling take the jersey off Sven two days later or a day later? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, we did. Well, the first ever, the first road win we had ever in Europe was at Tirano Adriatico in the team's time trial. That was the year before in 212. But, but yeah, that year, that year, yeah, Bling took it off Spain, and then the year after we we had three. Did we won in we won in San Remo the team's time trial? And we had we passed it on between three different guys. Nearly a fourth one. It went from uh, Simon Gerrans to. Michael Matthews, Michael Matthews, Simon Clark, and Esteban Chavez just missed it by five seconds when, uh, on the first two o'clock finish. As an Irish person now, I need to ask you this question. This needs to be truthful. Liège, the year Gerrans won it. Yep. Would Dan Martin have won it if he didn't crash? Highly likely. Yeah, I, I, I think he Highly had likely. it. I think he was, he was like a coiled spring. He was poised. Yeah, yeah, highly likely. Look, he's he's coming to that at the wrong angle by the looks of it, and he's clipped a, he's clipped a, his pedal by the looks of it. I, I think people are saying there's something on the on the on the ground, but it looked like he's coming at the wrong angle and uh, clipped his pedal. But it would have been hard. It all, no, it all depends on the reaction of Valverde. Uh, and Valverde could have chased him to the line uh, if there was any type of hesitation or gap. Then it would have been his. Yeah, it was a bit of a. It looked like a little bit of a junior mistake now from Dan Martin pedaling with the pedal down through the corner. Yeah, it looked like it anyway. Tell me this: you talked about uh, the restrictions around Tour de France. Yeah. How? What is the difference between the Grand Tours? Because looking on TV, you know, they're just three Grand Tours. But when you chat to you lads that are in the know, everyone's like, "Oh, the tour is just bigger." But no one really ever says, "What does what does that mean?" Like it's just bigger. Yeah, so everything you do at the Tour de France is just amplified because everywhere you go, there is just people. So you know, the media, the, the Giro, there might have there might be a t- thirty media following the race round, uh, global media, a 30, 30, 30, 30 channels from different countries. Uh, the Tour de France there might be two hundred. Uh, at the sign-on areas, the finish areas, at the hotels, there's just people everywhere. So it can feel like a fishbowl, and, and then for the riders, just that just the white noise is there all the time. You know, there's very few times in a stage where they're in, on country roads and, and, and no crowds. So there's, pe- there's just a lot of white noise happening for those guys. And then the guys who, some guys do struggle. I've seen some guys really struggle to adapt to the tour. And other guys, they, they, they thrive off it. They really, really they thrive off the white noise, that, that extra pressure, that attention. So it's, uh, it's just everything, everything you do at the other big races, it's just everything's amplified by having, by having people around you from, from breakfast till dinner. Yates has obviously won the Vuelta. Do you think if you can win the Vuelta, you can win the Tour, or is there different characteristics? Yeah, very different, very different. I, I think if if you look at the last twenty five years, uh, a small guy hasn't won the Tour de France for a reason, and that's because usually this year probably an exception. That usually the Tour de France is usually won and lost from someone's time trialing ability. The the well, main facts are we did have Contador. Yeah, I, I don't. Uh, Condor is not a small guy. He's he's 177 centimeter. He's not a small guy. He might be skinny, but he, he's certainly not small. Uh, you know, you can you can in the 160s, the 162, 162. Yeah, yeah. You know, is 10 centimeters taller than him, uh, and he could time trial pretty handily as well. And you know, even going back to you, know, you have to go back to Pantani. Pantani wasn't short either. He was uh, he wasn't a midget like some of the comments we got at the moment. <laughs> but uh, at the end of the day, the Giro, the Giro is the hardest of the Grand Tours. There's nothing like the Giro, the, the, the steepness of the climbs, the length of the climbs, the altitude, and, and the Welter is a very different race as well. The Welter is a lot punchier, shorter stages. You know, it's very different racing in, in 
Spanish summer than it is racing in, in spring. Uh, they're very different styles of racing. And because and the, the Vuelta, because, you know, the, the Tour, yeah, it, go, it goes left or right. There's the Alps, there's the Pyrenees, there's flat stages, whereas the Vuelta, it's just all over the place. You know, you could have, you know, two flat stages and have a mountain stage on stage three. Uh, or there's these random stages in the middle of nowhere that could dish up a crosswind. Uh, whereas, you know, the Tour... Usually the first week stressful. Usually the second week is one range. Usually the third week is another range. Boom, boom. The Giro, it's a little bit more up and down early, but always the last week is very mountainous heavy. Uh, so there's a little bit of predictability with those rates, those two. But the Vuelta is just all over the place. You know, when you start, could you, you know, one end of Spain to the other. Also, it can be, you know, the south of Spain is guaranteed stinking weather in, in that time of year. Whereas you know, you can go in the Basque Country or Galicia in summer, and it can be quite fresh or cool. So, you know, whereas it's, that's, that's the difference. This, the, it's just a very random race. But I, th- I think the guys in our team, we, we, we have got the ability to win the Tour de France. I think Simon and Adam Yates have that, their characteristics. They're, 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 they're not midgets. They're, they're not big guys, but they can, they're pretty handy time trollers. But what the difference now is that some of our best climbers now are, are world-class time trollers. So, you know, you've got to be able to take, time on Dumoulin, on Rodgelik, on Froome, on, on those sort of guys because at the end of the day, they can time trial better than you. So that's always going to make it hard. So what's that, uh, what's that look like, the interaction between you and, say, the coach for the Yates where you're trying to say to them, like, obviously the boys can time trial. When I say they're poor time trialists, I mean relative to Roglic. Uh, they're still going to, you know, fucking give me a pretty bad bait now for the 10 miler what's that interaction look like are you saying to the coach look we really really need to niche down and focus on the boys tt because i need them for the tour yeah look it's been it's been a uh, it's been a gradual process where the uh, the both both the eights can do a pretty handy sort of short to middle range time trial from 5 to 15k they're they're, they're pretty handy uh they've also punched out some not bad you know when I think when uh, Simon was in the, uh, the leader's jersey of the Giro, he lost one minute 20 in a 33K time trial to Dumoulin. So it's, and I think, yeah, or Dumoulin and, and Rowan Dennis, those sort of guys. So now when you can finish top 20 in a time trial, you're going all right. And uh, it's something they have to continually work on. And that, that inv- has involved multiple trips to, to the wind tunnel. That's involved making special, special carbon handlebars that are molded to their body shape. It's, uh, it's a, it's an ongoing process because at the end of the day, any stage race you want to win, there's not too many stage races in the world that don't have a time trial. So you've got to be you've got to be pretty competitive. And Roglic is looking pretty formidable in that combination of climbing and TT. Yeah, look, I, I see him as the favourite for the Tour de France if we can pull it off this year. Definitely. The only thing we all say with Roglic, if you look at his statistics as well, is he time trials very very good when he's fresh, uh, but he's had some shockers when he's tired. So the Tour de France at stage 20, and if you look at last year's Giro, uh, so when, he, when he was third, he had a pretty average last day TT. Uh, the, year be- uh, the year before, when he was in a place to take a podium spot in the Tour de France, he had a, he had a time trial where he lost more than a minute uh, to the likes of uh, to, uh, G and, and Froome and Dumoulin. So some guys like him time trial very good when they're fresh and not so good in the third week uh, fatigue time trial. But I, I, he is, for me, uh, as good as, you know, besides you're your very specialist, he's, uh, he's an all-round package. And, and the exciting thing about him is, you know, he's only, he might be 30 years old, but he's only been in the sport six years. So he's, he's a guy that's, you know, most 30-year-olds, they've plattered out and you know what you get from him. And the scary thing with him is because he comes from a ski jumping background, 
he's still got room to move. And I, I think you'll see him uh, keep on improving for a couple of years. Nearly what makes him so cool to watch at the moment is he seems a little bit headless. You know, he just hasn't learned the craft as well as the more senior riders his age. And it's almost like anything could happen. He, maybe he doesn't know his body well enough and he completely explodes on a day or he completely lights up a day. It's just hard to know what the fuck he's going to do. No, no, he'd be a bloody good ventriloquist as well, I reckon, Roderick. He's, uh, he's an ice man. He doesn't show much emotion. <laughs> he doesn't show, you know, you tell him he's just, just very, very, very uh, predictable in, his, in the way he reacts to things. Um, but, yeah, I think it's a bonus in some ways that he's, he's still pretty green because he's, he's not afraid. He's not afraid of throwing it out there and uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a great rider to watch and uh, obviously one of our biggest rivals. So how do you go about signing riders in cycling? Like, what's the discussion there? Say you want to get a Rodgelick on the team for next season. How does yeah. that happen? Well, it certainly won't happen. I'm, I'm more than happy with our leaders. But uh, guys like the big guys, the big guys don't come on the market that often. Uh, so obviously, if you've got big guys... Well, say we take Steel Milan, because he was on the market last year. Yeah, so obviously, we weren't looking for a leader. So there was no interest there, but... Well, he wasn't even on the market. He had a year, a year to go on his contract. So he, he obviously was keen to, to change houses. So obviously his manager had spoken with some other people and that's how it all started. And then obviously Sunweb and Dumoulin had to come to an agreement where they would let him go uh, for a certain amount of money. But what we're looking for is, you know, when I'm building a team for 2021, what have I got now? What, who, have, who have I got locked in for 2021? Who potentially could leave? What am I looking to bolster the roster? And the big thing that it all boils down to is how much money have I got to spend? Uh, so, you know, you're looking at developing, you're always looking at developing that next roster of guys coming through and, and having that next wave. You've got to give guys opportunity. You've got to give guys opportunity to develop and to take leadership because if you if you rely very heavy on certain guys, and I think a good example of that at the moment is Movie Star. They've relied so much on Alejandro Valverde and, you know, they, they've lost... They've had a huge loss for 2021. They've lost Quintana, they've lost Landa, they've lost Amador. Uh, that's a massive three to lose, massive three three guys to lose, and they've lost Carapaz. So there's there's two Grand Tour winners and Amador and Landa. That's four. That's four super experienced guys, and they're replacing him with Enric Mas. So when you're lying, so heavy on one guy, which has been for ten years Valverde, sometimes that does stifle. The development of other guys because it's movie star has been Alejandro Valverde's show and he has been so reliable from February to October every year. Like, he's sometimes the that, best, sometimes that, that he's safest investment in the world. If you were to bet on Valverde to come top five in every bike race, you'd be a rich, rich man. You would, but the problem at the end of the day, he's nearly 40, he's 40 this year, so every career comes to an end, and uh, and his is coming to an end sooner rather than later. So is there a, like, we hear a lot about the wages that riders are getting, but is there a transfer fee? So are you going around and hypothetically you need a leader for next year, say, or three years time, uh, the Yates brothers have decided to move on. Are you going around and you're whispering to teams and saying, right, look, I've got X amount of cash to spend? No, no, the transfer market doesn't exist. Look, what happened with uh, Dumoulin last year is a very rare, rare thing. So what you've got to do is you've got to prepare that second wave. And for, for us, that second wave is Jack Hagen, Lucas Hamilton. So yeah, if, if we lost one of the Yates or both the Yates, I've got two guys there ready to step up. And so, the plate. Hopefully we don't because I, I want to keep Simon and Adam as long as possible. They're great guys and great leaders. Uh, what makes a good sports director? 
Oh, I think oh, I think the biggest champions in our sport are probably the worst sport directors because usually if you're winning races with ease, you're a big champion, you have a, you see things a little bit different and you've worked at a different level than other guys where I think the best sport directors are the guys that are the middlemen because what, what helped me become a sport director is that I, I raced with some big champions but I could relate to the biggest of champions but also could relate to the young guys who are struggling or try to find their feet in the professional world and you've got you've got to you've got to be able to relate and have a connection with you know we've got 20 year old kids and and michael albacini turns 40 so you've got guys from very different generations all racing in the same team and you've got to be able to relate to all of them that makes i think that's the key in making a great sports director do you have a different relationship with an older rider like albacini oh 100 i'm someone who raced with michael and against michael uh, and I think there, well, there is in, in, in life. There's a, you know people you you speak or I speak to a forty year old different to I speak to a seventeen year old, twenty year old, and, and that's you've got to be able to adapt. And I think the older sport directors struggle with that. I think they struggle with you know, gone are the days that I say you do in professional sport. Look, I think it probably still exists in some sports, but I think the, the great leaders and coaches uh, are the ones who have great buy in from their athletes or their or their staff and. and take them along a journey with them. And I think those got, those days, and look, I had a lot when I was a younger athlete. I had East German coaches. I had hardcore, full-on coaches. And I think I learned a lot from them and not what to do. And also, uh, yeah, some sport directors, or well, some sport directors I had in the past, but they were jokes, really. They were, they were glorified taxi drivers. And I think, uh, you know, with the technology we've got now, we can give the guys a lot of information. But I think the key now is not to over 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 confuse them you know you're talking to a guy who's at threshold under immense stress taking life threatening decisions on descents you've got to know when to talk and when to shut up <laughs> and uh it's something that you know it's something you've always got to work on you're uniquely positioned in that you have sat through a big change in the garden cycling does the does the stories from like one generation ago with the younger riders do they still care about that Dirty era, or is it just like a a cautionary tale of time gone by? Yeah, I think that's all it is, and I think yeah, you know, and I was part of that generation, and and the, the young guys now doping or what happened in the past, it, it is just a story, and it has no relevance to those guys. That they don't know how how bad the sport was because they weren't involved in it, and all they know is what the sport is like now. And I think what cycling, and I think world sport needs to always realise is. Yes, we were in a bad position. Yes, we did get crucified by the media for a reason. For a reason. We were in a pretty toxic environment back in the 80s and 90s and even early 2000s. But the sport has evolved. The sport has moved on. One out of survival, I think, if the sport hadn't moved on, it could have you know, ended in a very bad way because there was so much negative publicity around doping. But that has nothing to do with the 23, 24, 25-year-old athlete who's turned pro in the last five years. They don't know, they don't know how bad the sport was. But I think it's a, it's a reminder that just because the sport is good now doesn't mean it will always be. And we, we, we always, the people who are, were around then, and I, one of those guys, we always have to keep an eye out for, you know, if you've, if you've made mistakes in the past, well, then you know decisions and you know traits of people who are making them now. And I think uh, we can't relax because, you know, at the end of the day, doping came around because of human nature. And that's people looking, make, looking to make shortcuts, people looking to make money, peer pressure, whatever it was. And that's always there, but just, it just goes away and it goes away in, in, in different phases. And we've always got to keep an eye on that it doesn't come back.
as a director, is this or it doesn't happen at all that you're sitting in the car now, you're watching someone win in a bike race and you're like, he's fucking one of the dirty ones. There's not many left, but he's one of the dirty ones. How frustrating is that? Uh, it doesn't happen anymore. It, you know, when, maybe when I first started as a sports director, there was a couple of dodgy guys, and actually I won't mention names, but a couple of dodgy guys, those results have been caught out in the last year or two. Uh, but that was 2008, 2009, and that, that was sort of, I really think, the end of an era where there was, there was, I don't, I don't think one cycling or professional sport is 100% clean. You're always going to have individuals who are going to take risks, uh, but you know, the risks now, uh, you might not get caught now, but you know, with the biological passport, with the way that teams approach things, with the team doc, way team doctors approach things, and, and you, you'll eventually get caught. It might, you might not get caught this week or ne- next month, but you can get caught down the track, and I think that's a big deterrent. But I think that those days of guys taking the piss and doing uh, uh, unhumane things, they're, they're long gone, thank God. Is it a nicer atmosphere around the sport? Oh, it's like night and day. I, I, wouldn't want, I wouldn't want to be involved in professional cycling in this role as it was when I was racing. Now, I don't know how those directors went to sleep at night time, not, not knowing what their athletes were doing, not knowing which ones that we could wake up in the morning and were taking big risks, who could go positive, who were hiding things. Who knows? I, I just, there was so much, so much cloak and dagger about the sport back then. I, I just wouldn't want to be involved in that uh, if it was the same. I chatted to Christian Meyer uh, last week and Christian, we were talking about how there's just such a shit legacy from that open era that when you do have stuff now that's genuine mistakes that no one wants to listen. And he was talking about Daryl Impey uh, taking uh, bicarb soda and he used these little pellets to help him absorb the bicarb soda ended up getting popped for it. But nobody cares about that story because of the legacy of all the shit we went through. Everyone just goes, ah, oh, it's fucking lies. Yeah, but that's, well, I think that's the problem in general with media is sensationalism and negativity sells, whereas now no one wants to write that positive story that actually Daryl was acquitted and that the, the, the mistake was from the pharmacist because that's, that's not a sexy story. But that's, I think that's, that's a problem with the media and it's even got even worse, I think, with social media. Is, you know, people, you know, does the media or do journalists actually exist anymore? You know, anyone with an Instagram account or a, a Twitter account can call themselves a journo these days and or they're, they're, they're part of the media world. And you, you say, well, look, look who's the leader of the, American, the United States. The amount of shit that comes out of his mouth and no one checks it or proves it, you know, what, what hope has the world got? Yeah, we're in a fucking strange place. Matt, I just want to wrap up this one because you've been, you've written for amazing teams like like the Merlot, the Postal are one of the, they're one of the greatest teams in the history of the sport and then into, you know, your director time winning huge races with Garmin and now. Who's the best riders you've ridden with, against or managed? Yeah, look, I think, I, look, I had a great relationship with Lance and, and he was a guy that, that I still have a lot of respect for. Not not for how he treated people, that's for sure. Because he admits he, he was a prick. He treated people like shit. Never treated me like shit. But what he did as an athlete, he, he really did he really did change the way that people looked at a calendar and how they prepared for things. And he really went away and specifically trained for events. And that that everyone does that now. You know, whereas before people would just you know, in the generation before me and these were guys that were going to Paranese with racing with leg warmers on and just 
they were racing 120, 130 days a year and using racing to get better. And there was no science in sport. It was just, well, I'll, I'll race a bit for a couple a month here and they will ride, ride me into form and then I'll be in form for this and race for this. And now that, that era changed and, and, and Lance led the way there. And we all knew that he was working and training as hard or harder than anyone. And uh, you know, when we were, I think everyone was afraid to let him down, that when you're racing with him, when he was up for, up for wins, he, uh, he was a great leader, uh, leader of men anyway. And as far as riders I raced with, uh, I, I think I that's really, the thing with Armstrong, isn't it? That's been lost in you know fucking Oprah interviews and all the subsequent Armstrong bashing. The hard work was real. The the dieting was real. The preparation was real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and at the end of the day, who he beat, who he, the people he beat were doing the same thing. Uh, there just wasn't a story to go around it. You know, and obviously he, he, the bigger the story, that the higher the, the bigger the fall. And you know, Jan Ulrich and all those guys who ran second and third to him over those years of, uh, of, of the Armstrong era, none of those guys asked to be crowned as winners of the Tour de France for a reason. Uh, and, yeah, it doesn't make it right, and it certainly doesn't justify anything at all. Uh, but they were all doing the same thing. One was just doing a little bit more successful than, than the others. And uh, it, it, was a, it was a pretty, I said before, it was a toxic era, uh, and uh, thank God we're past it. But uh, in, in, your as, mind, uh, in your mind, the seven Tour de France that now have no name on them, is, is Armstrong the legitimate winner in your eyes of those? Well, he's, not, he's certainly not the legitimate winner, but he's the winner. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I think no, one it's funny. no one beat him, put it that way. <laughs> I don't know if, like, you hear these hypotheticals thrown around, if no one was to open or if everyone was to open, would the results be different? They're just impossible to say. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we can't take back time. And they were this, that was the situation in those years, as terrible as they were. But, uh, yeah, he, he won those Tour de France's and certainly not legitimately. But uh, nor were a lot of people around him. That's that's for sure. <laughs> and is there any standout rider that you just loved racing against? Racing against, uh, oof, racing against. Look, I, I had a great relationship working with Brad Wiggins. It was only one year in two thousand and nine in uh, in Garmin, and uh, he was. There was a year where he went from being, you know, he was obviously done what he'd done on the track and uh, had an incredible pedigree there, but. I remember uh, yeah, he, he, at the Giro the, in 2009 there, he won, rode the first half of the Giro to, to, as, for, as, to test how good a GC rider he would become. And the second half of the Giro was planned that he'd just shut it off and go for the last day's time trial, which he lost by one second because he had, he had to finish his time trial in the rain in Rome. And I, remember, I still remember the phone call that I had off him about 10 days before the Tour de France. And he was putting out some pretty incredible numbers in training. And... Uh, he rang me out of uh, courtesy and just said, look, Whitey, I'm, I'm going really well at the moment. I've pulled, pulled up from the Giro. Incredible. I was wondering if, I could, if, I, if he'd let me ride general classification at the Tour de France. And the reason he was asking me is because Christian Vanderbilt had run fourth the year before and he was our clear leader. And look, I didn't see a problem with it, uh, having two leaders going into the Tour. And at the end of the day, they finished fourth and seventh. And you know, it's for him to ride GC for the first time at the Tour de France and finish fourth, it was uh, it was incredible to see. Obviously, he moved on to some pretty incredible things with with Team Sky, but that was a great period there as well, working with him. And it was it was a great relationship between him and Christian because two very different guys. And you know, whereas Brad at the time, Brad hated talking to the media. Uh, you know, all his dealings with the media were very sterilised through the track era. Whereas you know, there's official press conferences, and you could hide an athlete outside those press conferences. Whereas Christian Vanderbilt. 
he, he struggled sometimes with the pressure of the race, but also, but uh, with the media, he was bread and that was his bread and butter. So I really used to m- manipulate the two between each other and hide one and push one, and uh, they had a great working relationship. And uh, it, it was a, it was a fabulous tour in 2009 working with those two. Were you still at Garmin when uh, Ryder won the Giro? No, no, I, I had left that. Year. I'd left the year before. I'd taken Ryder the year before. I'd taken Ryder to the Giro the year before to finish seventh the tour. And then the next year he won uh, won the Giro. And there's, there's a guy, incredible as it is, that's the only stage race he won in his life. Really? And I only. remember that, was it, La- was it Stelvio uh, Van yep. Vels done a serious yeah. drive for him that yeah, day? Yeah, that was, that was when the Sausage Man, uh, uh, his name eludes me, his name eludes me, from Lotto Sadal. He was riding for Vakan Soleil. Um, uh, Thomas de Gent? Thomas de Gent, the sausage eater. <laughs> was 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 minutes away from winning the Giro. Christian Vanderbilt had to shut him down on the Stelvio. He, he was he won the Stelvio stage, and there was a bit of there was a bit of a Mexican stand up standoff going on up Stelvio. And Thomas again had been away in his uh, very typical breakaways, and he'd moved himself from fourth or fifth up into virtual leader of the Giro. And Christian Vanderbilt got on the front for about three kilometres, brought it back, and uh, and Thomas ended up finishing third. And that was uh, yeah, that was uh, incredible feat. Uh, it was great TV. It was great TV. Uh, Matt, I could chat to you all night. It's been an absolute pleasure. Any wild predictions for how this season's going to turn out before we go? Are we going to get some bike racing? Look, I really hope so. I really hope so. I, I, I'm going to leave. I'll leave it up for the uh, for the medical professionals and the, and the politicians. But I really hope we can get something up on the road for August. I, I don't know how they're going to do it. Uh, yeah, I understand how you can get stadium sports back up and running. You know, with no crowds. I don't know how you're going to patrol the roads of France. I don't know how, you know, we must have two to 3,000 people moving around hotel to hotel every night. The people, the riders, the staff, the, the, the media, the, the organisation. I don't know how they're going to do it, but I hope the hell we're, we're back and running in 2020 because uh, it, would be, uh, it would be not the most positive of things for our sport if there was no more racing in 2020. We can't do with another gap year in the Tour de France. There's just to be too many blank spaces on that trophy. Yeah, uh, look, it, fingers crossed we can get that calendar up and running and have the three Grand Tours and some great one-day races. And uh, fingers crossed they can do it because uh, yeah, it, it'd be great to see our sport back on the roads in 2020. Uh, Matt, is there anything you want to plug, or is there anyone, uh, any place that people can follow you if they want to, you know, plug into your journey? Yeah, look, I, I actually joined the uh, social media world about two months ago. Uh, I'm on Instagram. Uh, that's the only. I'm not on Twitter. I know. I know better than that. Uh, I get myself into too much trouble. But uh, I am on Instagram. You can find me there. And uh, look, you'll, anyone who follows the team will be able to see us on the our backstage passing videos. So once we're back racing and uh, and yeah, giving you behind the scenes look at uh, Mitchelton Scott. But it's been a pleasure. Roadman, that's it. I'm drawing the curtain down on another episode of the Roadman podcast. I love the momentum we're building here. I love the community we're building here. I love that all you guys are a part of this journey. Because, you know what, let's face it, you're probably like me and you're just a humble cycling fan. So to get a little peek behind the curtain into what these directors, top riders are doing, how they're facilitating this performance, it's pretty insightful. I hope you're loving listening as much as I'm loving bringing it to you. Until next week, guys, until next week, I'll be back next Wednesday again with, yeah, you guessed it. It's another amazing look inside the World Tour and everything health happiness and longevity. 
please 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 as i said like a broken record a couple of times now support this podcast help me help you help me facilitate bringing you this podcast every week head on over to patreon.com forward slash anthony underscore walsh and drop a little bit in the tip jar buy me a coffee buy me a beer as a little tip to cap because it's the lifeblood of the podcast and pick yourself up some roadman swag i'm leaving the link to both of them in the description down below and you know what i'm gonna see you next week thanks for listening roadman